There are a lot of reasons that set some destinations apart. Some are visually stunning. Places where I've been where I've almost gasped when I've seen them for the first time. Places like the pyramids, the Taj Mahal, or the Roman Colosseum. Other destinations will impress you with the enormous import of their geostrategic significance. Places that come to mind here would be the Suez Canal or the Panama Canal, the Berlin Wall or the Great Wall of China. Some places will remind you of the epic military events that took place in these sites that have changed the course of history. The walls of Istanbul, the fortress in Malta, or an amazing one, the D-Day landing beaches in Normandy. Hello and welcome to Snapshots from Europe Travelogue. I'm Brian Unger, and I'm taking you on a tour around Europe to visit destinations similar to the ones that I just mentioned. Today, we're traveling to a tiny peninsula of land off the southwest tip of the Iberian Peninsula, where all of these qualities, stunning visuals, geostrategic significance, and epic military events are all wrapped into one. It is the British Overseas Territory of Gibraltar, also known as Britain in the Sun. This massive 1,300-foot rock that guards the Strait of Gibraltar and the entrance to the Mediterranean Sea is truly one of the most strategic, iconic, and imposing places on Earth. Now, it's more of a challenge than you might think to try to tell the story of Gibraltar. There are numerous storylines that one could follow. Do I focus on the geology, the history, the political significance, even the unique wildlife? It's pretty tough to choose just one. So I narrowed it down to the top 10 reasons why Gibraltar rocks. This should give you lots to chew on in preparation for your visit to the rock yourself. So here we go, the top 10 reasons why Gibraltar rocks. Number 10 is geology. Now imagine that you're looking at a map of the Mediterranean Sea. It's 2.5 million square kilometers in size with a coastline that extends for 46,000 kilometers. 21 countries are along its shores and it has almost 200 islands, not including the small uninhabited ones, that is. And the gateway to this great sea is the Strait of Gibraltar. It's only 13 kilometers that separate the continents of Europe and Africa. And this strait is guarded by one of the most imposing geological features in the world. Now, if you go back some 200 million years ago, when dinosaurs roamed the earth, there was a massive geological upheaval, which resulted in a humongous lump of Jurassic limestone that got pushed up from the seafloor. It flipped over and it parked itself at the entrance to the Mediterranean Sea. Now, this rock of Gibraltar rises from the sea level up to 411 meters, and that's about 1,300 feet, and it doesn't look a lot different today than it did 200 million years ago. And because the rock used to be at the bottom of the sea, the top ridge of the Rock of Gibraltar is made from millions of compressed seashells. Now, rainwater has filtered through, and cracks, fissures, and caves, and eventually huge caverns were formed. So those who use the expression, solid as the Rock of Gibraltar, have you heard that one before? Well, you can be reminded that it is in fact honeycombed by history. The rock is riddled with natural caves and much later, some 50 kilometers of man-made tunnels. And that takes us to number nine. 
Number nine is caves. The rock of Gibraltar is made of limestone. And as you probably know, limestone dissolves slowly in rainwater. So over time, this process has led to the formation of up to 200 caves inside the rock. Some of the caves are famous, some anonymous. But without doubt, the most prominent and popular cave is St. Michael's, which hosts some 1 million visitors every year. And when you make it to Jib, as the locals call Gibraltar, you will undoubtedly make the total of 1 million and 1. This massive cavern, which is almost a 1,000 feet above sea level, was known as far back as the days of the ancient Greek poet Homer, and he refers to this cavern in his writings. The cavern has been used for military purposes as far back as the Moors when they conquered Hispania in the year 711, and it was also used by Spain during the War of Spanish Succession. At that point, 500 Spanish soldiers concealed themselves in the cave overnight after finding it being led by a goat herd through this uh, obscure path. During the Victorian era, the cave was used as a venue for picnics, parties, concerts, weddings, and even duels. The caves would be decorated for many of these events and even illuminated for distinguished visitors by soldiers who would perch on stalagmites with torches. During World War II, the entire cave was prepared for use as an emergency military hospital, but fortunately it was never used as such. And today, it's quite a magical place to visit. Stalactites and stalagmites are everywhere. And you'll be awed by the acoustic qualities and the sheer size of the cave. The largest chamber is called the Cathedral Cave, and the acoustic qualities make it a perfect auditorium. It's got a concrete stage, and it has seating for about 400 people. And it's used today for all kinds of events. It's a regular venue for concerts, operas, dramas, light shows, and the annual Mr. Balter beauty pageant. But to me, a visit to St. Michael's Cave is all that much more powerful when you look around and you realize that it was home to prehistoric peoples who lived in these caves. This was confirmed when a Neolithic bowl was discovered in the cave in 1974. But that wasn't the most significant thing that was found in the caves of Gibraltar. For that, we go to number eight. Number eight, we're going to call this Neanderthal Gibraltar. So here's the story. In the year 1848, a prehistoric skull was discovered in a sea cave in Gibraltar. At the time, people didn't make a big deal about it. It was safely stored away in the Gibraltar library in the center of town. And the origin of the skull and its importance was really unknown at the time. I've actually been to the library and I asked where they kept this skull because it was languishing in this drawer and it uh, people didn't really know, you know what the big deal was. Until eight years later, in 1856, another discovery was made in the Neander Valley of Germany. Now, the German word for valley is tall, so you can probably tell where we're going with this. This finding was quite sensational, and the term Neanderthal man was coined on the basis of this skull that was found in the Neander Valley. Now, this event reminded someone of the skull that was scrolled away in a box in the Gibraltar Library, and so that led to further examination and scrutiny. And lo and behold, much like the Neanderthal skull, the Gibraltar skull was dated to be somewhere in the neighborhood of about 100,000 years old. So we've all heard of Neanderthal man. 
But if not for some oblivious cave explorers who didn't really know the significance of what they had stumbled upon, today we probably wouldn't be talking about Neanderthal man, but Gibraltar man. So this was a missed opportunity to put Gibraltar on the map. Now, I mentioned that this skull was found in a sea cave, but when the cave was first inhabited 55,000 years ago, it wasn't really a sea cave at all. It was probably up to five kilometers away from the sea. And the area around Gibraltar really resembled a European Serengeti with hundreds of wildlife and cattle and birds and sea life all in abundance in the area. And that's what sustained Gibraltar man, what we now call Neanderthal man. In fact, Gibraltar had one of the densest areas of Neanderthal settlement anywhere in Europe. So since that time, the sea level has risen and you can only reach this cave, which is now called Gorham's Cave, by boat. But because of its significance as a shelter that was used by prehistoric man, and they figure for some 100,000 years this cave was used as a shelter, this is now a UNESCO World Heritage Site. So next time you hear the term Neanderthal, don't think Neanderthal, think Gibraltar. Number seven are the Pillars of Hercules. Now, I'm not quite done talking about ancient times. In the days of the ancient Greeks, the known world extended only as far as the edges of Europe. This edge was marked by the Rock of Gibraltar in Europe and Jebel Musa, which is another mountain-like landform in Morocco. On clear days, Jebel Musa can easily be seen across the Strait of Gibraltar from the top of the Rock of Gibraltar. These points became known as the Pillars of Hercules due to the Greek myth of Hercules. So here's how the story goes. Hercules was temporarily driven mad, and in this state of insanity, he unfortunately, apparently, killed his wife and his children. After recovering his sanity, Hercules deeply regretted his actions, so he traveled to ask the Oracle of Delphi if he could atone for his actions. He was told he should serve his cousin, King Eurystheus, for 10 years and perform whatever tasks he was assigned to do. So he was given 12 labors. For his 10th labor, he had to travel to the edge of the known world and round up a herd of cows from a three-bodied giant named Gurion and bring those cattle back to Greece with him. Now, the jury's out on exactly how this worked, and classical scholars will debate this. Did Gurion have three bodies and three heads? Did he have three heads and one body, or three bodies and one head? Any way you slice it, Hercules had his work cut out for him. The bottom line is, these metaphorical pillars of Gibraltar and Jebel Musa that were markers of the edge of the known world were depicted as actual pillars on Greek maps. The Greek philosopher Plato took it one step further as he placed the lost realm of Atlantis beyond the pillars of Hercules, which in effect placed it into the realm of the unknown. If we fast forward to the Renaissance, Renaissance tradition says that the pillars bore the warning non plus ultra which means nothing further beyond. And that served as a warning to sailors and navigators to go no further. In 1492, Ferdinand of Aragon adopted the, the symbol of the Pillars of Hercules, and he added the Latin warning non plus ultra, meaning nothing further beyond. In other words, this is the end of the known world. Now, it's quite ironic that Ferdinand was the one to adopt this slogan because it was he and his wife, Queen Isabella, who were the ones who funded the voyage of Christopher Columbus to the New World. So it became clear that there was something beyond. 
So Ferdinand went ahead and he changed the motto from non plus ultra to plus ultra, meaning further beyond. And this was meant as an encouragement to ignore the ancient warning, to take risks and to go further beyond. It also indicates the desire to see the pillars not as a gate to the Mediterranean Sea, but rather as an entrance to the rest of the world, and it indicated Spain's overseas possessions. This symbol was later adopted by the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, and it was added to his coat of arms, which represented Spain's American possessions. The symbol was later stamped on coins minted in gold and silver. And today, if you look at the Spanish flag, what do you see? Well, there's the familiar two red stripes on top and bottom, and there's that yellow gold stripe in the middle with the Spanish coat of arms being flanked by the two pillars with the words plus ultra. Number six, this one is sieges. So we're going to get out of the ancient world. After the disappearance of prehistoric man from Gibraltar, the rock was claimed by Greeks, Romans, Vandals, and Visigoths, but the first permanent settlers on Gibraltar were the Muslims, who arrived on the south coast of Spain in 711, and the rock was their first stop. I touched on this a little bit earlier when I was talking about St. Michael's Cave. So it might surprise you to know that the Arabs have in fact occupied the rock for longer than Spain or Britain. And incidentally, that is how Gibraltar got its name. The Moorish military leader who claimed the rock was Tariq ibn Ziyad. So he thought, well, why don't I name this rock after myself? How about calling it, I don't know, the Mount of Tariq? Now, in the Arabic language, that is Jabal Tariq. And if you try and wrap your tongue around Jabal Tariq in English, it kind of comes out like Gibraltar. And that's how it got its name. Now, one of the first things they did was to build a fortress, the Moorish Fort, which is one of the things you can visit there today. From this fort, they now had a base from which they could launch an invasion of the Iberian Peninsula. Now, the Moorish occupation did not sit well with the Christians, and they launched a campaign to reclaim the Iberian Peninsula for Christianity. This began later in the 8th century, and it wasn't until 1309 nearly 600 years after Gibraltar was first settled, that the Spanish Castilians succeeded in evicting the Moors after a month-long siege. In fact, Gibraltar would be the site of no less than 14 recorded sieges, making it one of the most fought-over places in all of Europe. Now, you'll be happy to know I'm not going to go through all 14 sieges, but two of them are a pretty big deal. During the War of Spanish Succession in 1704, a British-Dutch force gained control over the rock in a three-day siege. Now, this is a massive turning point in the history of Gibraltar, as it was ceded from Spain to Britain, and the rock at that point became a British colony. Now, Spain wasn't going to take this lying down, so 52 years later, in 1779, they attempted to regain Gibraltar in the 14th and last final siege of the rock. This siege lasted for four years, and it's referred to as the Great Siege of Gibraltar. And this was definitely the granddaddy of them all. This was when the British built the Great Siege Tunnels, which allowed them to launch cannonballs right out of the side of the rock. 
Spain responded by developing floating batteries, which were designed to fire at Gibraltar from close range. These were called fireproof and unsinkable batteries because they were built from wood and had layers of wet sand in between. So the British soldiers responded with ultra-heated cannonballs that they called hot potatoes, and they would rain these things down on the flotillas, which would then explode and sink the floating batteries. These siege tunnels can and should be visited when you go to Gibraltar. The construction of these tunnels is astonishing, and they do a really nice job of explaining the battle and how these technologies were deployed. So who won this great siege? It was fought really to a stalemate, and it was eventually resolved through diplomacy rather than military means. So when the dust had settled, Britain retained Gibraltar, but ceded East and West Florida and Minorca to the Spanish. Spain ultimately lost Florida to the United States, but the island of Minorca remains Spanish today. And of course, Gibraltar still is very much British. Hence, Gibraltar's nickname, Britain in the Sun. All right, we're up to number five, the British military heritage. Somewhat related to number six, I've already touched on the sieges and the ingenious military creativity that's been used to both attack and defend Gibraltar. But once the British got entrenched on the rock, it became integral to their global military infrastructure. And there's a very rich British military heritage that's become an important part of Gibraltar's history. Now, Jib became a key base for the British Royal Navy, and it played a major role in one of the most significant battles in British history. Let's go back to the year 1805, and Napoleon is reigning supreme in Europe. Napoleon had plans to invade Britain, but before he could do that, he needed to gain supremacy over the seas so he could safely ferry his troops across the English Channel. Well, the French Navy had rendezvoused with his Spanish allies, and they were heading en route to the English Channel. And the question was, would the British Navy be able to thwart this plan? Enter the legendary Horatio Nelson, Admiral of the British Fleet. On October 21st, 1805, Nelson set off from Gibraltar on his flagship, the Victory in search of the French and Spanish fleet, and he caught up with them just around the corner from Gibraltar at Cape Trafalgar on the southwest edge of Spain. They engaged in battle, and with Nelson's brilliant tactics, the outnumbered British Navy won the day. But during the battle, Admiral Horatio Nelson was picked off by a French sniper and died on the deck of the victory. After the battle, the British fleet returned to Gibraltar and they wanted to preserve Nelson's body. And the only way they could think of to do this was to put his body into a cask of rum. They brought his body ashore in Gibraltar and they put him into a second barrel of rum to preserve his body for the long journey back to England. The dead sailors, apart from Nelson, were buried in Gibraltar at the Memorial Trafalgar Cemetery, along with any other sailors that died later from their injuries or from fever. And I visited this graveyard, and I'd encourage you to do the same thing. I find this kind of thing really interesting. It's really interesting to look at these gravestones. I could easily do a whole podcast just on the great graveyards of Europe, and come to think of it, that's actually not a bad idea. But back to Admiral Nelson. His victory at the Battle of Trafalgar was monumental 
because this meant that Napoleon basically had to give up his plan of invading Britain. So to commemorate this battle, Trafalgar Square in London was built to memorialize this, and Admiral Nelson stands at the center of Trafalgar Square at the top of a 169-foot column. Many of you may have seen this. Gibraltar has also proved to be critical during the Crimean War, and it proved to have enormous strategic value when the Suez Canal opened because of its location on the sea route between the United Kingdom and the British Empire east of Suez. During World War II, Hitler had designs on taking Gibraltar. So the entire civilian population was evacuated from Gibraltar, mostly to London, and the rock was strengthened as a fortress. So the plan to take Gibraltar was signed off on by Hitler himself. They even had a code name for it. It was called Operation Felix. Would this plan be successful? That takes us to point number four. Number four is Operation Goldeneye. Now, the British were concerned, as I mentioned, that the Nazis would seize the Rock of Gibraltar, so they had to make plans for this contingency. So they initiated an operation that would ensure that even if the Nazis did control the Rock, they could continue to communicate with Gibraltar and carry out sabotage operations if possible. So there was a 32-year-old lieutenant commander of the Naval Intelligence Division who was assigned to the responsibility of drawing up plans for this whole contingency. His name was Ian Fleming. Now, Fleming got to know Gibraltar inside and out as he mapped out this scheme. And this evolved into a top-secret British stay-behind spying mission that would only be implemented if Gibraltar were captured by the Axis powers. The plan was that six men were to be sealed in the cave and run an observation post with one little slit 12 inches by 6 inches that looked over the harbor and there was a concealed outdoor terrace that also overlooked the Mediterranean. And the team would then wire back all shipping movements to the British Admiralty. Now, the cavern was fully supplied with everything that these six men would need, including a 1,000-gallon water tank. But here's the catch. These supplies were meant to only last for one year. If anyone inside this stay-behind cave happened to die within that span of one year, they would have to be embalmed and cemented into the brick floor. Only if Germany was defeated within the first year would they be released. So these guys were prepared to die in this cave if the Germans continued to hold the Rock of Gibraltar for more than a year. So as it turned out, the cave was not needed, so the provisions were distributed and the secret cave was sealed. But ever since then, rumors circulated of a secret room in the Rock of Gibraltar. For years, people explored the rock's cliffs, tunnels, and caves, but to no avail. But in late 1997, after searching for more than two years as a team, the Gibraltar Caving Group unearthed a sealed complex of tunnels that led to the famed Stay Behind Cave. Meanwhile, what happened to Ian Fleming after the war? Well, the 32-year-old intelligence officer who was the key member of the team that put the plan into place moved to Jamaica, where he purchased a plot of land and he built a little estate for himself, which he named Goldeneye after the Gibraltar military operation he was entrusted with. 
And you can probably tell where we're going with this story. He got a job as a writer with the Times newspaper in London, but he negotiated two months off every year where he, he could go to his estate, GoldenEye, and write. Drawing on his experiences in the intelligence service while in Gibraltar, he produced a novel in 1952 entitled Casino Royale. The protagonist was a British spy by the name of James Bond. Ian Fleming went on to write 14 James Bond novels. So you could argue that Gibraltar gave birth to James Bond. All right, we're up to number three, and we'll call this one The Rock of Romance. Ian Fleming created James Bond largely based on his intelligence work while he was in Gibraltar. And who brought James Bond to life? Well, many would say the first James Bond was the best James Bond, and I'm talking about Sean Connery. So it might seem appropriate that in 1962, Agent 007, a.k.a. Sean Connery, got married in Gibraltar to Australian actress Diane Salento. The couple actually mentioned publicly that they enjoyed the best moments of their lives while in Gibraltar. Well, that unfortunately didn't last very long because the marriage didn't work out. But give Sean credit, he uh, figured maybe a second time lucky. He got married in Gibraltar again in 1975 to Micheline Rockbrun, and this worked out a little better because they remained married all the way until his death, sadly, in uh, 2020. And Connery wasn't the only Agent 007 who took a shine to Gibraltar, as Roger Moore, who replaced Connery as James Bond, spent part of his honeymoon in Gibraltar. There have been other high-profile weddings in Jib, such as Winston Churchill's daughter, Sarah, and some prominent football players, as in the English call the soccer players football players. Many of them have also been married in Gibraltar. Another couple you've heard of, Prince Charles and Diana. Uh, they didn't get married in Gibraltar, but they did start their honeymoon in Gibraltar. Their ill-fated marriage started there as they boarded uh, the Royal Yacht Britannica in Gibraltar for their tour around the Mediterranean. But probably the most famous wedding in Gibraltar took place in March of 1969, when John Lennon wedded Yoko Ono. They chose this destination for a few reasons. Lennon stated that it's the pillar of Hercules, like we talked about earlier, and it's like the gateway to the world and the symbolic rock of their relationship. However, let's be honest, the most significant reason that they got married there is probably because there's hardly any red tape for marriages in Gibraltar, and you can get pretty much everything done within 48 hours. The ceremony for John and Yoko was actually only 10 minutes long, so let's just say it wasn't particularly romantic. Within an hour after their wedding, they headed for Amsterdam, where they spent their honeymoon in bed, where they were uh, protesting the Vietnam War with the world's press all recording every minute of it. Gibraltar, which commemorated the 30-year anniversary of the wedding with a special edition of stamps, didn't seem to take this as a snub. So how is this relevant information for you? Are you looking to get married, but maybe the pandemic has put a wrench in your plans? Well, like John and Yoko, think Gibraltar. The wedding industry on the rock is huge as there are minimal bureaucratic requirements and there are no virus border restrictions. So it's become an absolute wedding hotspot. 
go ahead and Google it. You'll see there are dozens of articles reporting on this. All couples need to do is to present their passports and their birth certificates. They have to stay in the territory overnight, either before or after the wedding, and you're good to go. So if you choose to get married in Gibraltar, you'll be in good company. Let's just hope your marriage will be more successful than Charles and Diana's. We're down to the number two reason why Gibraltar rocks. The number two reason is the airport. What? The airport? Why would I be talking about an airport? Well, now that we have you going to Gibraltar to get married, you'll most likely be arriving by air. But how can you have an airport on a peninsula of land that's only two and a half square kilometers and it's made up almost entirely of a big mass of rock? Well, Gibraltar is of such massive strategic importance that the British were determined to build an airport no matter what the obstacles. Earlier, I talked about the myriad of tunnels that were built over the years in the Rock of Gibraltar. So what do you think they did with all of the rock and the rubble that was excavated? Well, over one million tons of limestone was pulled from inside the rock and it was deposited in the bay. And from there, an airstrip was created. Now, the airport is so such close quarters up against the edge of the rock, the main road that enters the peninsula actually cuts across one of the main runways at the airport. So when planes need to take off or land, bells and whistles will go and a barrier will come down to stop traffic, much like you would have at a, like a railway crossing. And speaking of tightly packed in, the runway, it's only 6,000 feet long. A standard runway is at least 7,000 feet long, and more typically, it's a comfortable length of about 12,000 feet. The History Channel has a program called Most Extreme Airports, and it ranked the Gibraltar Airport as the fifth most extreme airport in the world. It's also exposed to very strong crosswinds around the rock and across the Bay of Algeciras, and especially in winter, landings are particularly uncomfortable there. Now, over the years, there have been more than the usual number of airport accidents and incidents, but this airport is, for the most part, pretty safe. There have been roughly 5,000 annual flights, and they seem to manage, although if you're a pilot, you'd better be on top of your game if you want to take off and land safely. The last time I was there, I actually sat on top of the rock, and I spent a fair bit of time just watching the incoming flights. It's cheap entertainment, and it's very interesting. So when you're up on the rock, keep your eye open for incoming flights and hold your breath as they're coming into land. All right, here's the moment you've been waiting for. The number one reason why Gibraltar rocks. All right, the moment you've been waiting for, we're up to the number one reason why Gibraltar rocks. So when you go to Jib, you're going to be awed by the spectacle of the rock. You'll be amazed by the caves, you'll marvel at the siege tunnels, and you'll get a kick out of that quirky airport. But I can almost guarantee that the most indelible memory you will take away from Gibraltar will probably be of monkeys. Now, if you've never been to Gibraltar, you might wonder what on earth I'm talking about. But if you have been to Jib, you'll know exactly what I mean. There are some 300 Barbary macaque monkeys in five troops who occupy the Upper Rock Nature Reserve. Now, 
They're actually monkeys, although they're often referred to as Barbary apes because they are a tailless species, so they kind of look like apes, but they are, in fact, macaque monkeys. This macaque population has been present on the Rock of Gibraltar long before Gibraltar was captured by the British in 1704. The original introduction of these macaques was most likely orchestrated by the Moors, and they arrived in the year 711, and they kept these monkeys as pets. A Spanish historian wrote a book in 1782 entitled The History of Gibraltar, and there he wrote of the monkeys, he said, neither the incursions of the Moors, the Spaniards, nor the English, nor cannon, nor bomb of either have been able to dislodge them. There's a popular belief that holds that as long as Gibraltar, Barbary, macaques exist on Gibraltar, the territory will remain under British rule, which explains why the population of monkeys has been under the care of the British Army since 1915. An officer was actually appointed to supervise their welfare. There's a food allowance of fruit, vegetables, and nuts that's included in the military budget. Births are recorded in true military fashion, and every new birth gets a name. These new monkeys are named after governors, brigadiers, and high-ranking officers. If there's an ill or injured monkey that needs surgery or any other form of medical attention, they're taken to the Royal Naval Hospital in Gibraltar, and they receive the same treatment as they would, as an enlisted serviceman would get. During World War II in 1942, the population had dwindled to just seven monkeys, and there was no way that British Prime Minister Sir Winston Churchill was going to see the monkeys vanish from the rock because of the old parable, so he ordered that their numbers should be replenished from monkeys uh, with new monkeys from Morocco and from Algeria. Now today, these Gibraltar Barbary macaques are hugely popular among tourists. And because they're used to human interaction, they're not at all shy about approaching people and climbing right on top of them. Now, you might find this cute, but you got to remember they're still wild animals and they will bite you if they're frightened or they're annoyed. Up to 50 people each year have to get treatment in the Gibraltar hospital following attacks of these monkeys. And you'll be tempted to feed them, but don't try feeding them because you could be fined up to 4,000 pounds. Last time I was there, I personally witnessed a tourist have her camera grabbed by one of the monkeys, and he took off with it, and that was the last we saw of the camera. These monkeys probably have a treasure trove of electronic devices scrolled away in a cave someplace high up on the rock. So when you go to visit, be careful. So there you have it, England under the sun. There is an awful lot packed into 6.7 square kilometers, or two and a half square miles, visually, geopolitically, militarily, artistically, even romantically. Gibraltar has a little bit for everyone. And throwing some monkeys doesn't get much better than that. So take a trip to the rock. You will not be disappointed. Now, if you want to see a few pictures of some of the things I've mentioned in today's podcast, Check out my Instagram, which is Snapshots Travelog. And if you have any comments or feedback, I'd love to hear from you. So until then, keep calm and travel on.